Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Galilee, the region where monotheism multiplied, where Christianity came into being, where Judaism reinvented itself, and where Islam won some of its greatest triumphs. Matthew Silver's two volumes, From Josephus and Jesus to the Crusades and Mysticism, Modernization, and War, chronicle the fascinating history of the Galilee region in a tour de force that includes interest in geography, politics, history, philosophy, and religion. Tune in as we speak with Matthew Silver about his recent books on the history of Galilee. You're listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. M.M. Silver is professor of Jewish history and world history at the Max Stern Yezreel Valley College and at the University of Haifa. Matt, welcome to New Books and Jewish Studies. Hello. So tell us about yourself, Matt, and how you became interested in Galilee. Uh, well, I think Galilee is a little more interesting than myself, but I'll, <laughs> I'll talk about that too. Um, as you're hearing my thick Israeli Hebrew accent, I'm American-born and, and uh, raised here through an undergraduate degree. Went to Israel for various uh, reasons. That's for the mid-'80s, so I've actually uh, lived more of my life in Israel and really became part of the culture there, but uh, retained my American roots, Um, did my graduate work at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, which was uh, an experience, and learned how to become a functioning academic in Israel in Hebrew, which is a second language to me, and I had to learn it as I was moving along uh, in Israel, and I've worked in, in the largest public college in the north, right around Nazareth, already in the Galilee region um, for about uh, 25 years now um, and wouldn't trade that career in terms of teaching for anything because it's been an opportunity in my field is modern Jewish history, but uh, be able to teach about the Holocaust uh, when a third of your students are Palestinian, Christian and and Muslim and also other groups that are in the north. um, That's been very exciting and very challenging. Um, the Galilee uh, comes to me, first of all, let me just, uh, for the listeners, I, I'm sure many listeners know very much where we're talking about, and what the, but for those who don't, we're talking about the northern uh, part of Israel that um, ends politically in our era with the Lebanon border, but sort of geographically, topographically, it can go up the coast into Lebanon too. Um, Haifa, uh, we don't really include in Galilee, that's even in contemporary Israeli society, that's more connected to the central uh, cities. The main towns in Galilee uh, historically are where I live, which is a kind of the mystical Kabbalah uh, capital that in English looks like Safed, but you'll hear me pronouncing it in the Hebrew way, Tzfat, and uh, Tiberias, which is on the Sea of Galilee there. We don't have any pronunciation difficulties, which, among other things, is where the oral law, half of the Jewish Talmud, which is called the Jerusalem Talmud, but I think most of it was really written in Tiberias. And on the coast, which is sometimes formally included in Galilee, sometimes not, depending on the era, 
is and is known very well, I think, in the West because the Crusader period is Akko, which would look in English like Acre, A-C-R-E, but we pronounce it Akko. Why I got connected to all of this, I think that if you um, have a certain mindset and believe that Israel uh, must retain its identity as a Jewish state, but also as a democratic state, and therefore you have questions about what's happened in the territories that were won in the 1967 war, and if you feel idealistic and you don't want to live in Tel Aviv, which if you grew up as I did, uh, Tel Aviv kind of looks like a miniature New York. Um, and if you, if you want to live in New York, you live in New York. Uh, I wanted to go up on the frontier and see parts of Israel, which, uh, which you feel like you're making a statement. All of these sort of calculations you have when you're in your early 20s, which you sort of laugh at 30 or 40 years later. But anybody from that mindset would tell you that you could go to the Negev Desert, which was a non-starter for me. Um, our first prime minister in Israel, David Ben-Gurion, thought that would be the future of Israel. I sort of disagree. <laughs> I think I'm happy many people do agree with that. And there's also the Galilee, which is more interesting to me because it's a very multicultural. Um, I think about half of the population today, if you include Muslim and Christian Arabs with immigrants in the former Soviet Union, who, according to Jewish law, may not be Jewish or getting incorporated in, in Jewish society. But I like that kind of multicultural and, and demography and society. Um, and I just like the feel of Galilee. It just is a, a stunning, rolling hills. Uh, but also to just add one more minute to the question that you asked, during the Oslo peace process, which ended uh, kind of catastrophically, I think, for both sides uh, at the beginning of this century, a few years before that, there was a feeling, those of us in Jerusalem who very passionately wanted this, the process to succeed, there was a feeling that, you know, we're leaving all of the labor to the politicians and we're not creating uh, new cultures on the ground that would provide an infrastructure for that. And you always have to ask, you know, what can one person do or one family, a young family with four small children at that point. Uh, so we moved up to Galilee and I was involved as a founding member of a um, multilingual, multinational Jewish Arab school. There are Jews and Arabs who will study in the same elementary school in Israel in mixed towns, but the curriculum, if it's a Jewish majority, will be very Jewish and Hebrew. And then there are the Arab towns, which have Arab elementary schools. This is an attempt to get a little beyond the politics, because that, as we all know, can keep you like, in arguing through the night without anybody uh, reaching a satisfactory uh, resolution, but just to teach the children about the different cultures and the history very exciting project, which is still going, very imperfect. It was hard to convince the Jewish kids to get serious about learning Arabic, all sorts of problems. When my children are listening to this broadcast, I'll sort of laugh at how I'm idealizing this. But it lit a spark in me that in the winters, when the Ramadan holiday would be in the same period as the Hanukkah for Jews and Christmas, the just overwhelming sense that you're really on the ground floor of something very new. And for me as a historian, I came to realize that there just are no books that will tell the story of, of the three major monotheistic cultures from a defined starting point through the 1948 war. We all have our biases and our top-heavy ways of looking at it. I'm being a Jewish person, I'm very much a Zionist Israeli, but trying to be fair and trying to understand the way the other narratives uh, work. I felt that this was a project that had to be done. It took me 20 years to get to it because I've been involved writing other books and other fields, um, but I'm very glad that I finally did get to it. 
In the introduction to your first volume, you mentioned that no world region has allure to all three monotheistic faiths on a level matched by Galilee in northern Israel. What do you suppose is the explanation for its prominence? That's a great question, and, and it also leads to the question, and why, if I can use a Jewish vernacular, a Shlomaza like myself grew up in suburban Maryland as the first person <laughs> to try to have in anthologies of, of Galilee. People who are interested in the New Testament period or the Kabbalah Jewish period, and you have multiple authors. But this is really the first time that you have one authorial voice who wants to, in two volumes, walk you. If I tried to do every single period, it would have turned into a seven-volume series, but it tries to be as comprehensive and detailed as a reader can reasonably be asked uh, to put up with. Why it's, it's so important, uh, obviously, the main, the main um, starting point is that this is the landscape in the region of Jesus's youth from Nazareth uh, through the time at the end when he goes to, to Jerusalem and therefore has always uh, generated enormous interest in the Gospels. The only of the four that isn't really Galilee-centered is John. Therefore, people who are centering on John can write books like When the First Christians Were Jews and really talk about Jerusalem all the time. But if you're going to take uh, Matthew, Mark, uh, Mark, Matthew, and Luke uh, seriously, there are differences in the way Galilee is described. Mark has much more references to synagogues, a more kind of Jewish uh, landscape. i am become more interested in Matthew, not just because it's my name, um, but because uh, I really can feel the tension in that book about what I'm interested in. And this, the original title of this book was uh, Where Monotheism Multiplied. Why had, was it necessary? How did it happen? And that, that Judaism add, gets, gets added with Christianity and Islam. What was necessary? What is still common within those three traditions? But what also separates uh, them? There is, a, a, and in Matthew, with the tension between uh, 517, I have come to fulfill the law, meaning the Jewish law, to the end, 28, uh, when there's this mission to the Gentiles and go and essentially create a new religion. Uh, then you have to ask, when is that particular gospel being written? And what was on, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, what was in Galilee in, in Jesus's time. But you have these, and like no other region on earth, you have um, figures like Herod, who is the starting point in 47, appointed by his father, Antipater, as Prince of Galilee. And you can see, if you want to call the Jewish historian who becomes Roman, Flavius Josephus, who tells stories about uh, Herod pacifying the peasants who are anti-Roman, representing a pro-Roman, but also a pro-Jewish viewpoint. But then you compare the image of Herod in the New Testament in Matthew and the legend of the massacre of the innocents of slaying everybody's two years old because of being threatened by this rumor of the Messiah coming, you get these figures who represent multiple meanings to the, to the three faiths. If you look at the great loss, the catastrophe for medieval Christianity, which happens at Hatin, what we call Hatin in Hebrew, which is close to Tiberias overlooking the Sea of Galilee, 1187, um, and the nobility of the Muslim hero, that story, Salah Hadin. And you are also remembering that according to many traditions, Hatin is also the site of the Sermon on the Mount. Then you have this, this incredible conflation of different ideas, holy war, Sermon on the Mount, turning on the other cheek. What region in history 
it, it can, can boast that actual region, Jerusalem, can come as a city and a symbol and the interaction between Jerusalem and Galilee fascinates me. Let, let me just add uh, two or three minutes to the question uh, you asked and just break it down into Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. What is so special about Galilee? Problem. Just framing, just giving the, the very broad answers. Christianity beyond the New Testament landscape of Jesus's life. You also have the issue of what happens when Christianity takes over Rome after Constantine converts in the fourth century. When the sites like Capernaum become pilgrimage sites, what are the relations between the first Christians and Jews in the regions of, of Jesus's youth? You know, those are very fascinating questions, and I think scholars always will go back to them. And you have the Crusades period, which I, the last chapter in the first volume, couldn't write enough about. I had to physically stop myself with figures like Tancred, Louis the Ninth, and uh, different images and why Acre and the Galilee is important to that. And you have one additional dimension to, to Christianity's interest in Galilee. If you're, if you're asking from that standpoint, and if you're in a frame of mind where you can think about a historical Jesus, in addition to the messianic Jesus from the Christian standpoint, then you have to ask, why are these followers breaking away from Judaism? Why is a new religion arising? And by the late 19th century, some scholars thought they had a racial answer to that, that you could de-Semitify and Aryanize Jesus. But we all know what directions, horrific directions that way of thinking about it can lead. So then it becomes important to ask, what is the Galilee landscape like? What is the interaction between this new faith and Jesus's message? I think one of the first scholars was Ernst Renan in 1863, writes A Life of Jesus, where he gives a, a rather kind of secularized view of Jesus, although he's writing from a religious standpoint, but he very much idealizes the Galilee landscape. And that's where something sacred in Christianity is coming in addition to, to Jesus. I think we'll talk about that probably in addition to another question you might ask, but that's the particular fascination from the Christian point of view. From the Jews' point of view, and I'm sort of speaking very rapidly here, um, there are three moments in Galilee history where Judaism or Jewish identity pivots and becomes something new, and it happens in Galilee. In 138, after the second of two catastrophically failed rebellions against Rome, the second being Bar Kokhba in 135, this is where Judaism or, or Jewish identity moves away from a temple cult in Jerusalem and becomes a rabbinic religion based on oral law, which we call the Talmud. That happens at a particular place and time at 138, a place called Usha, where a Jew, Jewish um, scholarly elite, we call the Tanaim, which I guess literally means teachers, begin to write the first part of the Talmud, which is called the, the Mishnah. That happens in Galilee. 1538, I'm sure we'll talk about uh, later, is the beginning of a process of leading to mystical Judaism, Kabbalah, which becomes part Torah and Talmud. Kabbalah becomes enormously important. That happens where I live in Spot in the Galilee. And so you have Talmudic, Rabbinic Judaism, mysticized Kabbalah Judaism. The idea of a national identity of Jews, which can be secular, that consolidates in Galilee at the end of the 19th century in the first Zionist waves of immigration. So those three different phases of what it means to be a Jew are happening in Galilee. 
And the final, of course, of the three would be, would be Islam. Now, if you're looking for centers of religious culture, there you go to Damascus or Baghdad or Cairo. But if you're looking at the place where Islam establishes its presence in the Holy Land and the Middle East and is saying to the world, this is where we are, we're not going to leave, the Middle East will become um, predominantly a Muslim in a part, part of the earth, then there are these three or four incredible battles that happen either within Galilee or on the edge of Galilee in 636 against Byzantine Christianity at a place called Yarmouk River and also a mountainous region. 1187, this great uh, victory against the Crusaders, which ends the basis of the first Crusader kingdom in Jerusalem, happily for me, who wants to write about Galilee, the Crusaders regrouped in, in Galilee after that, had a second kingdom for another hundred years or, or thereabouts, but another incredible victory. Another victory for Islam against the Mongols, when the first times the Mongols were ever defeated anywhere on the globe, happens on the edge of Galilee, and the defeat of Napoleon at the beginning of modern times in 1799. These are very big military victories and in terms of the consolidation of Islam and in terms of understanding Galilee's importance in the, the continuing Israeli-Arab-Palestinian dispute, that if you think of this tradition of, um, the last thing I thought about when I was going to write about Galilee history would be military history. And it, it only became evident to me how important it is in terms of understanding the third monotheistic religion. But in terms of understanding how catastrophic uh, the loss was in 1948, what Palestinians called Nakba. I think you have to juxtapose that against these three great victories that I talked about. So I think that the, a, a much heightened appreciation of the religious traditions of the three faiths um, can be had if you really study Galilee's history uh, seriously. Would you tell us something about the importance of Galilee for the life of Jesus? And what was the region like in his day? Ah, in Jesus' day. Well, uh, the first place to be to look at would be the three the three gospels I talked about, the uh, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. But let's talk about different sources and what they say about uh, Galilee. Try to put and also try to explain why this becomes such a crucial issue. I uh, begin. I kind of interrupt the narrative in the second volume, and I talk about how the search for the historical Jesus, which happened at the beginning of modern times in the era of emancipation at the uh, end of the 18th century becomes also a quest for the historical Galilee. Why does it become so important to establish what the Galilee landscape is like? Our sources uh, are three or four. Uh, one is the, as I mentioned before, the, the Jewish historian Yosef ben Metatiahu, who becomes Flavius Josephus, a uh, Romanized uh, historian, who led, I think, against his own will, he's kind of forced into a leading the Jewish rebellion in Galilee, in 66, 67 of this era, but also wrote about Galilee before his own participation as a military commander in it. And what each of these sources says about Galilee's landscape, I'll say in a minute, but let me just go through what our sources are. The second kind of source would be scholars who are interested in Judaism's resurgence and revitalization of the second century. What I mentioned before, the Tanaim and the beginnings of the Talmud, um, Martin Goodman of Oxford University having an outstanding study of what Galilee is like in the second century. There, the sources are Talmudic sources, but I think it's, it's quite reasonable to take that 
description of a galley like in the second century and move it back a century because these regions can't change too much. We're not, we're not an era where people can get on airplanes or, or on steamships and, and they have mass population changes. So 100 years isn't that significant. The third kind of source would be descriptions of what it was like in antiquity, not really from Old Testament sources, but sources can, that at the time described what was happening to Jews, among others, like the Book of Maccabees. And here you get a view of Galilee 100 years before Jesus. Another way of looking at uh, what Galilee must have been like in Jesus' time is through archaeology. And of course, archaeology can uncover physical evidence. It's left to those of us to argue about what the physical remains uh, might uh, mean. And the last thing to consider is you can take Galilee in Jesus's lifetime, but then you have to think about when the Gospels may have been written. And I realize that can be a divisive uh, um, um, issue among people of different uh, belief systems and Christians and so on. But if you accept the Gospels are written decades after Jesus's life, there was this incredible event that happens, which is the destruction of the temple in, in Jerusalem. And that changes what becomes important in Christianity in terms of uh, uh, Jesus's life. So let's just quickly run through these different sources. I'll just give you the bottom line of what each source is telling us. Uh, Josephus is telling us that uh, Galilee is pretty populated, <laughs> uh, probably more fortunate to the other areas in the Holy Land than it is today. Uh, and uh, Josephus talks about 240 hamlets, and he gives a large number of, the average hamlet has a large number of thousands of persons. So you have a big population according to that. And crucially, he talks about two urbanized areas. He talks about um, um, Sephoris, which we call in Hebrew today, Tsipori, which is very, very important uh, um, um, because it's so close to Nazareth. I drive by it after teaching in my college uh, near Nazareth. It, it really could have been walking distance. So there's been a supposition that maybe Jesus as a carpenter was building homes in Sephoris, but that's a new city built by Herod's son, Antipas, um, not built by him, but sort of re revived uh, by him. Antipas's uh, years are very congruent, contemporaneous to Jesus's uh, lifetime. And the new city is uh, Tiberias, uh, which was a kind of dicey thing from the Jewish point of view because it was built on burial remains. But it has to have made some sort of impact where there's a supposition that even though Tiberius is mentioned in a passing way in the New Testament, and only once, Tsipori, Sephoris, not at all, it has to make a difference that there were these um, Romanized urban areas or possibly made a difference. The Talmudic sources, which was our second um, second kind of source, talk about uh, Goodman in his, in his in his study, he talks about 300,000 inhabitants of Galilee in the second century. He talks about Aramaic as the language. He talks about what might have been um, traded, olives, the kind of um, crops and things that are being traded. He talks about a monetary economy, a very kind of lively, robust fishermen, um, um, in, in contacts with Paganic cultures and places like Accra and, and other areas. So that's a pretty interesting um, um, source for that. But the question that Goodman can't answer based on Talmudic sources is what are these common folk in Galilee like? Are they simple, but innocent, sincere people who will have the insight and ability to recognize a Messiah when he 
comes within their view? Are they a rebellious bunch, which is the kind of hints that uh, Josephus is giving? Uh, and there are important New Testament scholars like Horsley who talk about in double taxation. The peasants in Galilee would have had to give part of their crops to the Jerusalem Jewish priestly elite in holiday observances getting to Jerusalem in the temple, and they also had to pay taxes to the Romans. So there is a theory that this might have been a very restive, a rebellious kind of population. If you read Reza Eslan's very popular book of Jesus as a Jewish zealot, he really pushes that kind of view. Or are they what the Jewish rabbinical elite began to call Amei Haaretz, this kind of just ignorant, susceptible peasant types? Why do these become, and that's the common denominator when you're reading through Josephus and the New Testament, that the argument which gives birth to this division between these two new monotheists, established a new monotheistic faith, a crucial question becomes is what were these people in Galilee uh, like? And, uh, and, and to give one theory that they gained some power and credence in the 20th century through theologians like Shirley Jackson Case, there's an idea that perhaps um, if Jesus's complaint, as in Matthew 23, is that Judaism became a very dogmatic, the Pharisees, and um, looking at the letter of the law and ignoring the spirit of the law, Jew, Jewishness as a kind of parochial identity, then it might become important that there's this place like Sephoris that, uh, that was Hellenized and might have had different population groups. So there has been this theory that Galilee might have been part of the Gentile, the Galilee of the Gentiles. The phrase appears in Isaiah in the Old Testament, it appears in Matthew, I think in 4, uh, 14. So this division that was sometimes made between Judaism as a more kind of parochial faith and, and Christianity as a more universal kind of message, not a division that Jews would accept very easily, perhaps. Uh, but that is based on a particular view of what Galilee's population might have been like. So then the question comes, let's dig in the ground and see what, what we find in the archaeology. Here, I think that the one finding, and there are, and particularly because Galilee doesn't have a university, I dedicated these two books to some future university in Galilee, which I would see as a kind of multicultural shared between Jews and Muslims and Christians. Um, but the, some of the New Testament archaeology, some of the archaeologists has been done in, in venues like Sephoris or by New Testament scholars like James Strange. I think the one finding there is that there was a kind of Romanized overlay houses with mosaics in a place like Sephoris. Um, the prevailing scholarly view for the last generation has been that Jesus was clearly Jewish, that Galilee was a Jewish venue, there was no separate Jewish law in the Galilee, everything was kind of united around Jerusalem. Um, but I think it's significant that, that there was a kind of different architecture there, that there were Hellenistic influences, that has to be significant. And that has to be significant because of the other kind of sources we have about the question you asked. I call them the Book of Maccabees or the descriptions of what Jews were like 100 years before Jesus. There we know that at 103, before the Common Era, century before Jesus's birth, Galilee possibly wasn't Jewish. The Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, had to revitalize Jewish life in Galilee. And that has to add to the supposition 
that maybe the Jews in Jesus's time in Galilee had more, if you want to use a kind of loaded term, shallow Jewish roots or more, more newcomers to Jewish faith. So I think that this discussion of in, in Galilee of the Gentiles, that's an exaggerated view of the Galilee was Jewish, but I think the final word hasn't been hasn't been stated yet because uh, in the the evidence in the archaeology is, is ambiguous, and I think scholars like Mark Chancy, who really are pushing the idea of Galilee of the Gentiles as a myth, um, might be pushing it too far. Uh, um, that even, of course, the I agree with the idea that Jesus is Jewish, but then you have to ask yourself the question: What did it mean to be Jewish in first century Galilee? We know about these three different sects, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, who were down by, in the south by the Dead Sea. Um, but what might have been different about Judaism in, in Galilee? Matt, tell us also about your chapter on early Islamic Galilee. Islam comes to the world in the 7th century. 622 is the hijraj of the prophet to Medina. It takes hold in Galilee in the Holy Land in 636 because of uh, this great battle that was uh, fought in uh, Yarmouk. The Byzantines, the Eastern Christians, are the losers. And I talk a lot about um, Heraclius, the Byzantine Empire of Lost. So then Islam takes hold in Galilee until the Crusades in 1100. You can divide that into different periods. The first period, the uh, Umayyad uh, Caliphate or dynasty, and the first ruler of it, Muawiyah, is very much tied into Galilee. It is a palace, Al-Sinabra, on the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And he uses Galilee as a base against what's becoming the schematic, schismatic rivalry in Islam against the Shiite uh, movement. So for that hundred years, it's very, very important in Islam. The next caliphate, based in Baghdad, the opposite caliphate, Galilee and the Holy Land is very much on the periphery. I guess the third phase of Islamic Galilee would be a Shiite phase, Ismaila movement, uh, um, um, which doesn't lead uh, to political unification. By the 9th and 10th century, the Eastern Christians, John Simiskis and others, are realizing that maybe they could have a crusade and regain uh, the Holy Land. In the final blow, I guess, for how Christianity decides in the West at the end of the 11th century with Urban II and, 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 and the call for the Crusades and retaking is this uh, Fatimid ruler, another dynasty based in Cairo, Al-Hakim, who, um, who was assassinated exactly a thousand years ago. He desecrates Christian holy sites uh, in Jerusalem. Um, and that really is be- the beginning of the end of this Islamic period. But to ch- give you the short answer of the question you asked about Islamic Galilee, um, the um, essential thing to remember, and there, if you look at the geographers who are writing a thousand uh, years ago, and I talk about them, and a compilation of their writings by an 1896 British Orientalist called Guy Lestrange, you find incontrovertible evidence that Palestinians, Muslim Palestinians, even though there are less, the Islamic conquerors were nomadic people who didn't necessarily settle, but you find incontrovertible evidence that there were Palestinian villages a thousand years ago in Galilee, 
without a Palestinian national consciousness, that comes much later in the World War I period. Um, but these ideas that, you know, that, that Galilee only belongs to one faith, the Jews, the Christians, not the Muslims, that simply isn't true if you look at the evidence that, that is marshaled in that chapter, which is based on many, many other sources. You also have a section in volume two, which sounds interesting. It's called Kabbalistic Galilee. Tell us about that period. Uh, with pleasure. I, I also, I'm talking about my hometown here, so I, uh, I have the home field advantage in this in this discussion. And now, again, I'm talking about a place called, and it looks in English like Safed, but I pronounce it as we do in Israelist Sfat. Um, Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah comes to Galilee via Spain, and uh, three or four centuries before the end of the 13th century, Spanish Jewish mystics, Moses de Leon in Castile, they write this uh, book of Zohar and based on one of the second century Jewish sages, Shimon bar Simon bar Yochai, who was called by the Hebrew ac- acronym Rashbi. And the Zohar, again, written in Spain, not in Galilee, in centuries before Kabbalistic Galilee, the chapter you're referring to, talks about this, um, you know, projecting back in time about this mystical elite and Rashbi is sacrificing himself in the name of what we would call today national reconstitution in, in, in Galilee, because he talks about these assemblies, these idrot, um, where the mystics are sitting by one another and they're sharing this esoteric knowledge with one another. I'll give a, a brief description of what the actual content of Kabbalah is. So there is a Zohar, which in many ways, if the New Testament is written in the Gospels by people who may not have known Galilee, because they may have been writing about what they heard about Jesus from different parts beyond the Holy Land, the parallel here, uh, there are other parallels, because think of Jesus having a band of disciples, and here in the Zohar you have Rashbi, who's not a messianic figure, but he's a very specially empowered Marvel comic book, if you want, uh, figure he has powers that that we uh, don't, or insights, mystical insights. Structurally, there are parallels. And also, the Zohar has a Galilee landscape, which in many ways is a match. Then things happen in the world. The Spanish Inquisition, the expulsion of Jews in 1492, Ottoman Empire, Turks take control in 1513, thereabouts. Jews are looking after they're leaving Spain and Portugal uh, for where to go. The Ottomans are much more inviting toward Jews, not just in the old Holy Land, places like Salonika become um, thriving Jewish commercial cultural centers in this era as well. We're also uh, against the background of the scientific revolution. Copernicus publishes toward his death in 1543 I'm heading to 1538, so lots of things are in the air uh, at this point. And Jews drift, why do they choose Spot rather than Jerusalem? A lot of the answer has to do with this idea of the Zohar. They're inspired by the idea that there's mystical knowledge to be gained in Spot. There are other reasons why Jerusalem is not the preferred option at this point. The other thing that uh, I talk about in this chapter, because I'm, I'm sort of always racing to get into describing the mystical knowledge, which just fascinates people around the world, from Madonna to, I don't know, everybody's sort of into Kabbalah these days. 
but uh, do please remember that there is a kind of socioeconomic infrastructure to this uh, thing. Kabbalah is made out of wool. It's thought has a wool-based economy in, in the 16th century um, because there's an outlet through, through Tyre and Lebanon, because it worked that people can work at homes in the early kind of putting out system. It's called kind of doing factory shifts with making wool products in their own uh, home. Yeah, I found that very fascinating. And you have garments in Kabbalah imagery based on this kind of, uh, based on this kind of economic activity. How do we know, again, before getting into the content, what this was like, Kabbalistic Galilee? Because one fellow, Solomon Shlumiel of Dresnitz, drifts into Kabbalah a generation after the leader of Tzvat Kabbalah, whose name was Isaac Luria, called Ha'ari the lion in, in, in Jewish culture. Generation after he dies in 1572, generation later in the early 17th century, in, in 1602, I think, Solomon writes his description. He compiles the legends of Ha'ari. He could read the numerals on your forehead, touch your soul, had them in insight and access to mystical knowledge, could commune on graves, with lost souls at particular mystical hours of the night. And one of the great biographies of Luria, written by a very fine scholar named Lawrence Fine, calls Ahari a physician of the soul. So the Solomon Shlumilu, who he gathers these legends of Ahari, but he also talks about what Tzvat was like. He talks about what you could find in the markets. It sounds like a pretty tasty place. He talks about figs and raisins and watermelon. Um, he talks about um, um, 300 rabbis in 21 synagogues. So I have a pretty good description of what was actually there. In but let's talk about what, what the allure of Kabbalistic Tzvat is like. And of course, I don't have time to go into all of the concepts. I'll just go into one of them. The idea that, that Genesis or the beginning of our existence is, is based on a concession of the Almighty, this contraction of, of pure light, Ein soft, it's called a contraction called Sinsum, which gives space for our own experience. And this idea that there's a kind of partnership in the repair of the world between God and, and mortal man in an era when, when, when belief in man's ability, I mentioned the scientific re re revolution is rising, but there is a fear in Jewish circles of too much rationalism. The Zohar, 300 years before in Spain, had been written against Maimonides, against using Greek philosophy and science too much. Mysticism is responsible. But you want man to have some sort of participatory role in the cosmos. This idea of simsum and a contraction is given that. Of course, what I think a lot of people know about Kabbalah is that something went wrong in this Genesis moment that there is this kind of lever and pulley system, which are called spherot, there are 10 of them. And in the process of pulling all this light, some of it spills out and there's a breakage called spherot hakelim. And then it's left to us through tikkun, repair of things, uh, um, to, to kind of find the, the flashes, the sparks of light that were left when these vessels, these spherot, there are 10 of them, with male and female cognates, and the imagery becomes very Baroque, very imaginative, very engaging in, in all of this. 
why is that, you know, why of all of the different mystical and isms through the 19th century that, you know, socialism and hypnotism, why is Kabbalah in, is so important? Then look at the great Jewish theologians of the 20th century. Martin Buber, based in Germany, ends up in Israel. Abraham Joshua Heschel, great American Jewish liberal uh, rabbi. Look at the titles of their books. Thou and I, God in search of man. This idea of tzimtzum and, and, and repair, giving man a role that if you do these ritualistic observances at the right time of night, if you control your sexual urges through mystical uh, remedies, and, and you're participating in the repair of the cosmos, cosmos and perhaps the advent of a messianic era. Through all this, though, I think that there are two um, great myths about Kabbalah. I'm trying to produce here an objective history that with enthusiasm, enthusiasm describes what these different faiths believe, but is also critical meant to be a, a objective historians. There are two great myths about Kabbalah in the Galilee. The first is that these mystics are full-time, obsessed, scholarly, mystical elite who have no time for anything else. It's just not true. If you look at Ta'ari's disciple who disseminates his, his writings, there's a man named Chaim Vital who ends up in Damascus in the 17th century. Vital was an alchemist and he wrote encyclopedias about how to erase wrinkles from your forehead and have a longer life and so on. He's obvious, and he wrote a book of dreams, Sefer Hazion Note, which is fascinating. And he's putting down um, the kind of orthodox um, halachic Judaism. There was one great halachic, what we call orthodox Judaism, who was in Sfat, named Joseph Caro, who also had a mystical side to him. A lot is going on in Vital, and a lot of it can be tied to this moment, this early modern moment, when people are looking for total answers. And for Vital, I think mysticism, Kabbalah is one of them, but he's also looking for different answers in what today we would call science. So this idea that Kabbalah will only lead you to this mystical communion that happens three, three, 300 meters from my house in Meron, or I guess more of a kilometer from my house, on one late spring holiday called Lag Baomer, and everything is in spiritual and mystical, that's not the only legacy of Kabbalah. I think Vital's legacy and can also be linked to the medical school that we have in Sfat. It comes from a very particular moment in time. The second myth is that if you want to look for something which is exclusively Jewish, that has nothing to do with the other, go to Kabbalah, because it's so sort of esoteric and different and so on. Kabbalah is deeply influenced by Christianity and other faiths. The reason why these mystics in Sfat are in Sfat is because they're communing on grave sites, which wasn't an inherent part of Jewish tradition. Grave sites were, were considered to be contaminated and foul and before this moment in the 16th century. And later on, the structure of Kabbalah and the Zohar, as I mentioned, is very much like things in the New Testament. And what is Jesus saying about the Pharisees in Matthew, that they're too rigid and doctrinaire? What is, what is Chaim Vital Na'ari saying about Orthodox Judaism? Although Kabbalah remains within Judaism, it's adding this mystical, spiritual element because just, to, just to, to observe the commandments isn't providing an emotional response. 
there are clear parallels to Christianity in that. In other words, Kabbalah, in other words, although it has very authentic Judaism and mystical concepts, it's very much tied to the other faiths. The key moment when you sing on a Friday night service a Kabbalistic song called Lecha Dodi, and you say, that the end of an event is premeditated. There's some sort of eternal design and these images of coronating kingly belief and so on. You can tie that very clearly to the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. With, a, with also crown and kingly images. So uh, although you learn a lot about differences between the monotheistic faiths, even when you study something like Kabbalah, which is so esoteric and seemingly so Jewish, you ultimately come back to the commonality between the faiths. Now, the second volume covers the period 1538 through 1949, including the fight for Galilee in 1948. Would you touch on how you broke down modern Galilee into these different periods? Yeah, again, we'll do the, uh, I'll do this one in just sort of a rapid fire. Just quickly give the periods, and then I'll add one sentence about what you can find in each period. Um, the first period we just talked about, uh, in, in, by the end of the 16th century, of this mystical moment based in Spot, um, which is really an era, and also in the long span of Jewish history. This is one of the great moments in Jewish history as well, the Kabbalistic period. Then in the 17th century, in the 1620s, you have the one period in Galilee history which is not dominated by one of the three faiths. It's dominated by the Druze people who are an offshoot of Arab ethnic national, but develop their own religion, kind of secret religion, but I, I'm very close to Druze communities and very fascinated by it. So drawing on whatever sources I could find, I talk about the Druze religion. But they had this moment through a ruler named Fakhar al-Din, where there's a Druze prince in Galilee. The next, re- the next era would be in the 18th century, uh, in Dahir al-Omar, who dies in 1775, a year that Americans uh, will recognize in his 80s. He's a Palestinian figure. I'll get back to him in a second. So there's this Palestinian Muslim moment in Galilee, in modern Galilee history. Then there's this Napoleonic moment. Napoleon comes in 1799, and then a Muslim ruler 30 years later named Muhammad Ali, not to be confused with the Pujalist, has a very important decade in the 1830s in control of Galilee. And then the next two periods are successive Jewish periods. Um, There is an Orthodox um, from two different branches of East European Orthodox Jewry. Won't get into that here. Hasidim, which is a word that I think people know being one of them, they come into Galilee and to Tzfat and to Tiberias and through the 1830s, a little after. Um, and then you have the Zionist moment in the 1880s through World War One, And then there's 1948. Of course, to talk about all of this stuff would take a book, and that's what I written in a book. But let me just give half a sentence about some of these periods. And the Druze period, in the 1620s is just fascinating because you have this Druze have always fascinated and outsiders who come to the whole, who are these people? And so on. Fahar had an period in Italy and he was influenced by kind of Renaissance culture and science. He comes back. Um, he's from the Shuf mountains in Lebanon. Fahar Adin is one of the patriarchal figures in Lebanon. 
which is a very divided country, as we all know. Uh, um, but he was said to be able to mobilize 10,000 men at a moment's notice. So he becomes a phenomenally important uh, political uh, leader. But I think that experience in Italy kind of distinguished him uh, somewhat from, uh, from other rulers. Dahir uh, al-Omer, the Palestinian prince in the, in the 18th century. Again, Palestinian nationalism is a modern 20th century uh, phenomenon. That's not just me saying this as a Jewish person, Rashid Khalidi, great scholars of Palestinian nationalism will date the rise of Palestinian nationalism in the 20th century. But there are Palestinian Muslims, of course, in Galilee. So the 18th century becomes, and Dahir, it becomes, it's his moment. And it's based on a cotton economy. Dahir, because he's from the region, from a village called Bene in the central western Galilee, knows the local populations. He, and there's a French traders who are beginning to get interested in cotton who have a lot of leverage because they can sell cotton in European markets for whatever they want, so they can bribe the local falahin, the peasantry, so on. Dahir figures out how to manage all of these different elements and to market the cotton through Akva, the old crusader uh, capital, and becomes phenomenally important. The modernization, contrary to the Western myth that the modernization of Galilee and the Holy Land comes from the West, from, comes from Napoleon, you can find modernization beginning in, the, in this Dahir period through the Palestinians themselves. And of course, what I find, the kind of cunning irony of all this, who takes over cotton after Dahir? The American South. So you have enslaved blacks singing spirituals about the Jordan River, where they've taken over an industry, which was, which was based uh, decades before peasants who were working cotton lands by the Jordan River, so to speak, in Galilee. I'll skip over the uh, Napoleonic phase and Muhammad Ali. Uh, there's a lot to, to talk about in, in all of that. Uh, this, this kind of great irony of history that you have revolutionary heroes of the French Revolution who are now in spot in you know, this spring of 1799, uh, um, viewing it as the French Riviera, drinking wine, where the mystics three centuries before had sang uh, Le Chadodi and developed the Kabbalah. Napoleon, of course, is defeated. Ahmad Pasha al-Jazar, who uh, Muslim, of course, but he's from, uh, he's from Bosnia. Um, the irony is the great Arab military history who defeats Napoleon. How many times did Napoleon lose before 1812? He doesn't. Uh, one of the ironies is that Ahmad Pasha was very unpopular. He was called the butcher. Um, if you read a, a, one of the great, I think the greatest novel written about Galilee is by a man named Alachlel, contemporary Christian Arab who lives in Acre today. He describes how cruel a figure uh, Al-Jazar was, but he mobilizes the, the local population, some of them mercenaries, some of the local residents, and they fend off with British support, of course, in the harbor. They fend off in Napoleon. Napoleon. And the Zionist uh, immigration uh, wave. Let me just uh, end this at uh, that, that question you asked. There is um, what you, what uh, Israelis call two aliot, two waves of immigration, started in the 1880s. But the second one in 1904 went from in the Mount Tabor, known to Christians as the site of the Transfiguration, um, a school teacher, Jewish school teacher named Wittgen sends off this plea to Jews in Eastern Europe, you know, leave the pogroms, leave the persecution in Eastern Europe, come and let's work the land in Galilee. 
And the other Jewish colonies that had been formed in the center of the, of the country, Petachtiv, Tikvar, Mishon, Tzion, not in Galilee, are perceived as being becoming decadent, as becoming non-pioneering venues. This moment on to Galilee and will work the land, will become Zionist pioneers, if you will, will become Israelis, which is a new modern national identity. Now, this is a transformative moment. It's like what happened in 138 after the temple is destroyed and Judaism becomes a rabbinic a religious faith. And now we're in, 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 in 1904, we're revitalizing Jews as a national identity. Um, you know, this is a grand, grand story, also from the Jewish point of view. And then we have the 1948-1949 uh, war, which I thought was going to be the most sensitive and difficult chapter to write. Um, but I found that as long as you're committed to a multicultural uh, kind of approach and you're trying to understand how the different peoples view this from the inside, it, it was a chapter that flowed in very easily. I talk about one Jewish figure, Igal alone, one Arab figure, uh, Kouachi, Fawzi Kouachi, was head of the Arab Liberation uh, Army, and uh, talk about the Nakba, why it becomes a Palestinian catastrophe, and talk about why it becomes a war of independence and fulfillment uh, for the Jews. It's obviously a very, very uh, mixed picture. From, and we're still arguing about the meanings of the implications of 1948. But I think it's a chapter that, um, um, that almost wrote itself in this book. Matt, you reside in Galilee. What does this region mean to you? And what do you hope readers take away from your work? I, you know, I really believe, um, I come from Jewish studies background and the book that I had written previously to that, which I talked about in the new books uh, network and another uh, podcast. Um, I felt that I could go so far in describing the book before Galilee is about how Zionism consolidated, how various ideologies important to American Jews, like the melting pot. And that's a very Jewish studies book based on um, the Jewish sources of the time and the Jewish research, which has gone on in the past, say, 50 years. But there was a feeling that um, we're exhausting ourselves, that uh, we need to bring in different perspectives. We are becoming too too parochial. And I have this Galilee background, which I talked about at the beginning uh, uh, of the interview. I think that sometimes when you have interfaith discussions which are based on contemporary issues, um, um, the recent Supreme Court decision about the right to life, the right to choice, um, people can argue about these things, but they're not necessarily um, heading towards some sort of spiritual insight about why I am Jewish, why you are Christian, why that's okay. What's the difference between us? I think that once you provide a kind of common ground and you're looking at things that are you know, based in one, one particular region and there's an actual history to be told, um, then you can uh, bring in kinds of new insights that may not be had if you're not having a kind of grounded uh, dialogue. So that's one thing that I think uh, Galilee brings. Uh, my own agenda, uh, you know, have mouth will travel. I'm in the States for the next uh, six months on a semester sabbatical and want to talk about Galilee to whoever wants to listen it to me. But I think at the risk of being um, megalom- megalomaniacal, a bit too uh, self-involved, I do kind of have a vision of what needs to be done. I think there needs to be a kind of journal called Galilee Studies, um, which about half of it would be based on 
actual different phases, slices of life in Galilee history. Whoever wants to write about it, Christian Jews, Muslim Druze, anybody else, you know, really getting into the history in a scholarly kind of way. And the other half would be discussing interfaith issues. I think what Gadley urges you to do is to really think about where Christianity begins and ends compared to where Judaism begins and ends in Islam. So I think half of Gadley's studies could be dedicated not just to Gadley history, but to the larger questions of what separates and unites the monotheistic cultures with my own particular interest in education as a tool for better understanding between peoples. And that goes back to this Galilee uh, school uh, that I talked about. The idea is not just to produce another journal. I mean, the market is flooded with scholarly journals. I think that the, uh, that um, Israel needs another university. It needs a university based on a different kind of multicultural, multi-faith Nobody's going to challenge Israel's sovereign right to exist. We're not talking about that, but which is based on um, a department in the humanities, which is committed to having a kind of rotating, what they call in Lebanon, a confessional structure where you have a Muslim, Jewish, and Christian editor, make sure that there's a pluralistic kind of uh, voice uh, there. Um, that what I'm calling a Galilee Studies journal would become the basis for a new kind of humanities faculty uh, based on a new kind of university, which would inspire not just Jews, but other peoples. I'd become very concerned that the dialogue, say, among Christians, not just from the evangelical community, which has become very committed to Israel, but from the mainline liberal uh, churches have become very antagonistic to Israel because of the political controversies. And I share many of the criticisms of what's happened in the, in the settlements. But I think that's throwing the baby away with the bathwater. We need to find a way to re-engage ourselves and, and become involved in a very positive dialogue. And I think Galilee opens uh, the window uh, to that. And I'm not going to shy away that I think that a, a correct multicultural reading of Galilee history as a corrective to certain anti-liberal trends, which you can see in among American Jews and Israeli Jews today. I think that if you learn the history of the 1948 war, and if you look at what's going on in the boycott, so-called BDS movement today, I think that many Jews around the world are perceiving that perhaps legitimately as an actual threat to our family. That's okay. But there's a thing going on now sponsored by certain kinds of governments that we've had from the right in Israel, which is trying to deny a Palestinian right and a voice in Galilee history, particularly what happened in 1948. Um, and that, to me, in my mind, isn't so okay, because to hear those Palestinian voices is something that our own family, my own Jewish family, has to hear. A family that's not going to listen to a son who's in crisis or a daughter who's in crisis because of a particular issue becomes dysfunction. So this idea that, um, that we can defend ourselves against boycott movements, that becomes a family's legitimate right to self-defense. But to muffle out other voices which are saying things which aren't so easy for us to hear, that becomes a very illiberal, illiberal thing to do. Distinguishing between those two different modes is complicated, I admit, 
But I think that's the burden of liberalism, and to, to know how to oppose a legitimate threat, but also to listen to, to, to voices in history, which may not be your own. And I think uh, studying Galilee's history uh, very, very seriously um, encourage us, encourages us to do that. Are there any other projects you're working on? What are your plans for the future? Well, I, I it, professionally, my, my next book for the sabbatical will be about uh, uh, American Jews in Israel. But getting to Galilee, um, the project I want to put out, but I don't want to do this as a solo show. I mean, there are times when you're writing a two-volume history of Galilee, history of Galilee, and you're looking around, you know, why hasn't anybody else done this? You feel kind of too much like a prima donna. So I want to do books in, in collaboration with other scholars. I have a volume of a Galilee spirituality in mind where you would republish texts talk about why Lecha Dodi, this, this Kabbalistic um, P, um, a hymn, I guess you would call it in English, where it might be in common with something like the Lord's Prayer, but other lesser known uh, texts as well. Perhaps do it as an internet site uh, I, I, as well. But um, the other thing that I, I wanted to do, my publisher for these two volumes uh, wanted a very proper bibliography to, to, as you need in a scholarly book. I wanted to write a kind of bibliographic essay about the images of Galilee and the arts in Renaissance painting. It's so interesting how an Italian Renaissance artist would portray Nazareth and so on. Um, I, and also in literature, different images of Galilee. I very much so, the, the, the text on Galilee is spirituality based more on the prayers and the scriptural traditions, but also perhaps in that volume or additional volume, it, talking about the image of Galilee in the arts, I think, is something that needs to be done. My own training is not in the in the visual arts, um, but uh, you know, I can in collaboration with other scholars. I think it's a volume that needs to be done. The historical significance of Galilee is remarkable. Thank you, Matt, for joining us and giving us a better appreciation for Galilee. Well, thank you very, thank you very much. I mean, I can just also thank Ellen Unger, who is the matchmaker between us. Uh, for, for helping to set up this interview, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.